Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. My guest today is Joanna Jensen, founder of Child's Farm, the award-winning brand offering revolutionary products for sensitive skin. Joanna's story tells the power of being shameless with research, prioritizing consumer feedback, and how to create a product where almost anyone can be your customer. I mean, I'm one of those shameless people that goes around with a box of products in the back of the car and I hand them out willy-nilly because everyone is a potential consumer. I didn't pay myself for five years and I did stop paying myself. I paid myself a fraction of other people I paid. Historically, and where all my best ideas have come from is being on the back of a horse. Hi, Joanna. Hello, Connie. Thank you for being here. I'm so honored to have you as my guest. Oh, well, it's such a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we'll go straight into the questions. Tell me about yourself as the founder of Child's Farm, but also like as a person, Joanna Jensen. Joanna Jensen. So, I mean, first things first, I'm a mom of two girls. I mean, that's how we're normally defined. I'm Mimi's mom and I'm Bella's mom, um, which I think people refer to you as being your children's parents the entire time. I'm not sure most people know my name even. (laughs) And so I founded Child's Farm for my girls. Bella um, was born with really bad eczema, atopic eczema, really sensitive skin, and there were no products on the market I could find that would soothe that. And so I took it upon myself to make my own formulas for her. And those were what became Child's Farm. And I launched that in really 2011, the end of 2011, with just on a website, um, a couple of really exciting bits of PR in equestrian magazines, because they were the only people I knew. And that was the start of Child's Farm. And it sort of snowballed really from there. And because you know, Bella had really bad atopic eczema. One in five under fives do have atopic eczema in the UK. What I created for her actually resonated with so many other parents. So very quickly, we started with um, Cardo and Amazon in 2013 as our first form of distribution, then Boots and Waitrose in 2014. And then it went completely nuts. We had a couple of viral Facebook posts where First instance, a mum said, you've cured my daughter's eczema on her hands. And then a year later, a lovely woman said, you've cured my psoriasis. And this was both using our baby moisturizers. So it was not only a fantastic solution for my own children, but as I had thought, there were so many others that could benefit from these fantastic formulas that were fun. They were naturally derived. They were sustainable. They smelled fantastic because we used really fruity fragrances, which everyone loves. And they look fun because, you know, when I was a kid and I had eczema, everything was blue and white, looked medicinal, and I wanted it to be much more fun. So all the labels were all the colors of the rainbow, featured my kids, they featured the animals from our farm, which was actually called Child's Farm. And so it seemed to resonate not only with kids, but with parents as well. So I think a solution provider. Yeah, I love that it came from your personal pain point. And that's when it becomes very successful, when it comes from the founder's personal pain point, doesn't it? And for me, like, I'm personally a loyal fan of Charles Farm. So my second one, she had a severe eczema. And we tried every single product in the market. And we're now stuck with Charles Farm. And even I use it. Oh, brilliant. I mean, but it is... It's one of those things. and, And you and I both know from our fellow female founders that we know... Most of these businesses that people start up, women start up, are because they've got, they're scratching a personal itch. And it's something that they really need to deliver on for themselves or their family or a member of their family. And it just becomes so much more genuine and much more authentic. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think is um, so special about the formula? Let's go back to the product. It's so good. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I was brought up, my mother's a bit of a hippie. And I was brought up, every time I was treated, it was either homeopathically or naturally. And so those were the values that really stuck in my mind. And I've always been very interested in cosmetic products. So when I was formulating the Child's Farm products, there were certain criteria I had to hit. There were certain ingredients we did not want to include, say parabens and SLSs, for example. But there were other ingredients we did want to include, like shea butter, cocoa butter, 
glycerin, which had been used for years to soothe angry skin. Um, And that was really, really important. I wanted naturally derived natural origin ingredients, and I didn't want to use any ingredients that didn't have a backstory. So we had to know where everything came from. And we used to use an argan oil, for example, that came from a community in Morocco. Our um, coconut oil comes from a community in the Philippines. And all of these things really, really matter to me because it was so important. And even our packaging, from the get-go, we were always sustainable. We moved to partially um, post-consumer recycled plastic very early on. And by 2019, all of our bottles were 100% PCR. Not only that, but they are POP, which is prevented ocean plastic. And ours come from Indonesia. It's an island of 223 million people, the bulk of which are drinking bottled water or bottled drinks. And this community initiative collects these bottles before they hit the ocean. They then go into big depots. So communities are earning money by collecting it. They go into depots. It's shipped back here, chopped down, and turned back into our bottles. So everything we did, every element had a good story, a good ESG story behind it. And eventually, um, 2020, we became a B Corp, which was the real pinnacle for us. For those that don't know, B corporations are those that hit the highest standards of ESG, environmental social governments. And so that was a real feather in our cap of knowing everything we'd done the whole way was thinking not only about skin, children's skin, and in fact, adult skin, because 27% of our users are adults. It was thinking about the right thing for their skin, but also the right thing for the planet. It was a very long-winded answer to what you've asked. But I think what's so important now is for those people that are founding a business or have a business is knowing that your impact on the environment, your impact, negative impact your products create, you've got to be conscious of that. Because, you know, we're all leaving a legacy for our children. You're a mum, I'm a mum. And it never hits you more than when you have children about how you're going to leave the planet for them. So I think it's a vital thing on your tick list of things to do when you're setting up a business. Now. Yeah, absolutely. And I love how you know the story behind every single ingredient of your concoction. And how did you go about formulating initially? Did you do it at, like on your stove? Did you find a chemist? How did you go about it? Well, I did fiddle around at home myself, but actually... I was introduced to a brilliant company down in Kent, um, Medichem, and I was introduced to them because I knew that they had done the Dutchie originals. Can you remember back in however long ago that Dutchie Cornwall created a number of products, which they subsequently sold to Waitrose? But I found this company, Medichem, and they'd done all their formulations, so I knew that they understood about natural, natural origin, and organic as well. And... I worked very closely with them. And actually, I I had a list already of things that I didn't want in there, but things I wanted to include. But also the only thing that Max, their formulator, sort of got a bit sniffy about was, oh, you've got some really weird fragrances like strawberry and mint. And I said, but that's an English summer, Max. And she's going, oh, it's weird that. Anyhow, she did it. And she said, you know, that's my favorite fragrance now. So what's the inspiration behind the fragrances? Well, they're all all fruity fresh. And that was really, really important. Look, you know, my sister hates grapefruit, yet I love grapefruit. We've all got different fragrances we like. So it was really important to give children a choice. So we went through, so some, and actually somebody used to call these our pudding fragrances. So they were sort oh, of I ones, that. ones that are blackberry and apple and, you know, you know, pudding-y type fragrances, anything rhubarb and custard, you know, those were ones, they just reminded me of, you know, English summers and autumns. You know what? My kids love sniffing on your products. They're like, hmm, this smells like chocolate, marshmallow, because you have that cho- chocolate and marshmallow that Christmas, flavor, right? Yes. Yeah, that was brilliant. But it, it is, you know, I think you've got to, you've got to dial up your childlike imagination about the fragrances. My kids as well were hugely influential. And at one stage, one was heavily into pineapples, one was heavily into watermelons. And so I smashed them together and made a body wash that was pineapple and watermelon. So I pleased them both in one go. And it sort of smells like toffee apples. It's utterly delicious. It's my favorite. But it it means that bath time can be different every day if you want it to be. And, you know, they'd sometimes sort of say, no, actually, I'm in a raspberry mood tonight. 
and so they'd use the raspberry bubble bath. And it's that sort of mix it up, the excitement of having choice that's so important. Um, and, you know, at one stage we thought, I mean, I remember when I was a girl, you had these sets of shampoo, conditioner, moisturizer and body wash that were all the same fragrance. And we did try that once actually with a fig fragrance. And A, it was too sophisticated for our audience being little boys and girls. But B, they love mixing it up. They don't care if their shampoo is strawberry and mint, their body wash is orange and their bubble bath is a tangerine or raspberry. They don't, they don't care. They engage with the imagery. They engage with the different fragrance. It's, it's like walking into a cornucopia of smells. And I think it's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And you make every, everything sound so effortless, but what were the early years like? What were uh, your struggles? Well, Connie, you know better than anyone else. You know, we're like graceful swans on the surface, but underneath we're flipping, going mental with the amount of energy we have to expend. I mean, for me, it was quite challenging because I was on my own. I had two small children and it was, you know, endless strife. But I think what's so important, and I, I'm sure you resonate with this, is the fact I was so passionate about it. I truly believed in what I was doing. I'd seen the results on my own children's skin and I knew this would work on other, other children's skin. And I was just super, super passionate about it. And despite all the hard work, it was fun. And it was a challenge. I was putting myself out there. I was doing things that, you know, I hadn't thought I was capable of. I was meeting fascinating people. Yeah, I was exhausted. You know, you'd get up in the morning, do the kids, take them to school, work, pick them up from school, feed them, put them to bed, work. It was, you know, weekends were working. You know, it, it was an endless cycle, but it suited me yeah. as a person. And, and I mean, you're pretty the same though, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think entrepreneurs are driven by like, doing our own thing having control over everything and not being told what to do right yeah and, and that you, motivates us and waking up in the middle of the night and you know solving a problem literally as you sleep yeah it's kind of weird but it happens yeah that must have been so hard because I started astronomy before kids I'm not sure whether I could have started a business while I was raising kids because they were toddlers, yeah. right? When you, they were, you were, kids. They and you were, were a single mom yeah, at that time as well. It, it was tough. I mean, but look, I didn't have another source of income. And I had invested so much in Child's Farm. And I'm stubborn. I mean, you know, I'm a Torian. I mean, you know, we don't stop. We just get on and do it. And I was quite determined it wasn't going to fail. But I had 100% belief it would be successful. Because I just knew it worked for my girls um, the feedback I had from my consumers, and this is, this is what's so important and can sometimes be overlooked. You know, we have a view and we're the view of two people. Um, you need to put yourself out there. If you've got a new idea, you've got a new product, you need to go and introduce it to consumers. And they've got to be people that you don't know because family and friends tend to sugarcoat anything because they just want to make you feel good. Yeah. But people you don't know will be really, really honest. And I put myself out there. I gave away samples with questionnaires. I wanted to hear the feedback. And I listened. And, you know, my motto is, you know, consumer insight is everything. There is no greater insight you can get if you are running your own business yeah, or absolutely. selling products. Yeah. How did you go about running consumer, um, I guess, feedback? Um, oh, I was shameless. I had no qualms. I'd go to the school. I would ask any groups of people that I could come across. I would do, say, we sampled with water babies, for example. We have a three-in-one swim. So who better than to give out a load of samples to water babies? And I would say, can they fill in a questionnaire? We did independent user trials, which we asked parents of children with medically diagnosed eczema to use our products and then to feed back on how they behaved on their skin. We could not get enough feedback from consumers because even though, you know, as a disruptor brand, you're creating someone, something that no one's ever seen before or had before, but you can't immediately then assume that they're not going to like it just because they're unfamiliar with it. I was talking to Vivian Wong the other day about Little Moons and exactly this, who knew that they needed mochi ice cream in their lives until Vivian and Howard created it. So, 
you've got to sort of push yourself out there. But consumers are very honest and they'll tell you. And, you know, if I was starting a business now, I would do it exactly the same way. I would be asking people. I mean, I was the shameless woman that used to go up to poor women in boots who were shopping, shopping the baby toiletries aisle and say, why are you picking that? You know, have you heard of this brand? I mean, I was totally shameless. I love that. And what was the initial feedback? All of it was tremendously positive. And that's the thing. We did, we had created something that made bath time fun for those who had poorly skin. And it was a category that was a bit of a dinosaur of a category. Nobody had touched it for years. You know, the old stalwarts were there, Johnson's baby, baby dove had come along. But it was it was a sort of bit of a no man's land. And I hadn't even considered that when I started. I just thought this is something my kids need. Um, but actually that played to our strength because we could completely disrupt it. And, you know, we launched the website in 2011. By 2019, we were the market leader in the UK in baby and child personal care and still are because we created something that was different. And I've been told by people in other countries, oh, but you need to change your packaging so it looks the same as everybody else. Well, why? Then we just look the same as everybody else and we don't stand out. Part of our success was the fact we were all the colors of the rainbow on a shelf which was predominantly white or beige. And I found that people in the industry are scared of change, but consumers love it. They love a different take on stuff. They love to make it more accessible. They love things which are purpose-driven. And they love things that are ideally set up by a mum for, you know, which is for children because it inspires them that, you know, maybe I could do something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now you know, like you're touching millions of lives because you have scale, but how did you get to that scale? What was that breakthrough? Was it going into boots or was it getting those like positive reviews? Tell me all about it. Well, I did flog up and down the country in a transit van for what seemed like an eternity, but we would go to school fairs. We would hand out so many samples. We worked with the NCT. As I said, we worked with water babies. Any opportunity, black yeah. current babies, they used to, they still do a lot of sort of young, you know, music with mummy, um, that kind of thing. We gave out a lot of samples. Mm. But unbeknown to us, we had this sort of little quiet following that was going on. So when we did launch in Boots and Waitrose in the summer of 2014, the products just flew. I mean, we had no money and we were doing everything with sort of spit and sawdust and a bit of super glue. But people really got behind it because it resonated with them. And all the way that we grew very quickly for those first couple of years was word of mouth. So when this Facebook post was posted in 2016 by um, Paige Sweeney and a picture of her daughter, Evie Ray's Little Hands, it was 2017 actually, when that was posted and before Facebook had these algorithms involved, it went viral. And that first post was a game changer for us. And over the period of about six months, it was shared about 65,000 times. Wow. Paige and Evie Ray went on this morning. Um, it was on the Daily Mail. It was syndicated literally in every single publication in the UK. It went international. We then got somebody in Australia who said, please, can I try your, try your products? I went over to see her, Rebecca Little and her daughter, Charlotte. Charlotte had chronic eczema, so much so that she was wrapped in um, bandages at night, um, because she was in so much pain and, and pay, and Rebecca said, Oh, I'm going to go cold Turkey, take her off or in medication and just use child's farm. And I sort of said, please don't, I can't, you know, and she did. And boy, it worked. And then we went all over the telly in Australia for that having happened. Then later in 2018, a wonderful woman, Laura Gray posted just a picture of our baby moisturizer on Facebook and said, my mother bought me this and it cured my psoriasis in 24 hours. Wow. And that within a month was shared 65,000 times. It was, I mean, it was, it was nuts. It was completely nuts. And that was the complete game changer. So it was word of mouth. This was never planted by us. This was totally organic you know, we didn't really understand what was happening. Mm. We were suddenly our website was oh, getting that's nuts. That's amazing. So how for, for young entrepreneurs, right, like who want to create this kind of virality, 
what do you think they could do looking backwards? I know, like, it just happened organically because yeah. you happen to have great products and everything. Well, it's how, absolutely yeah, how Have a great product. Yeah. You know, make it really clear what your product does, you know. But give your product to as many people as possible. Because, you know, in this world of influencers where we know that people have been paid to tell us what we should and should not like, the authenticity of individual people who have got no financial gain from spreading the word is golden absolutely golden. So people talking about your product and people telling others about your product. I mean, we would get, and we still do postcards, letters, pictures, um, all sorts of things from people. We'd get voice messages in the morning, you know, back in the days when you had one central uh, telephone system and one voice voice recording (laughs) machine. We'd get people saying, I just wanted to phone you and let you know about my experience with your baby moisturizer, your bubble bath, whatever it was. And and we'd be listening to these messages. And by the end of it, they would get quite emotional. We'd all be sitting there in floods oh, of tears. Oh, that's so sweet. Because it really mattered. And and I think, you know, if I was saying something to anyone now, you know, not everyone has to go out there and come up with an Xmas solution, but think about what your product delivers, where the gap it is that it fills. Find, seek out those people that would use your product and give your product to them. Let them try it and let them talk about it. And people listen to people that they respect. And it could be, you know, a friend of yours from school or it could be, you know, somebody who runs your local coffee shop. I mean, I'm one of those shameless people that goes around with a box of products in the back of the car and I hand them out willy-nilly because everyone is a potential consumer. We used to do, um, in Boots Head Office, we'd sort of do a, you know, sort of handout sampling day. We'd have queues going around the block because it's not just for us. It wasn't just children that suffered from eczema. It was, it was grown-ups as well. And you never know who your audience is going to be. You know, for us, it's grannies, it's aunts and uncles, it's godparents, it's parents, it's caregivers, and it's pester power and children themselves saying, I want the one that smells like, you know, yeah, so, fruity, so, so fruity you, starburst. You you were essentially creating this community slash influencer marketing before it became a thing. You're the OG community. Oh, I'll take that marketer. one, Connie. I'll take that <laughs> I one. I love that. But you know, so even, organic. Even the stores, the retailers that we're in, I went and made friends with the store managers. I would go and talk to them. I'll never forget walking into Boots in Newbury, and I walked straight through the front door, and there was a gondola end, so it would, a whole shelf of Charles Farm. And I went up to her and I said, why on earth is that? We haven't paid for that. And she said, oh, I know, but Charles Farm is always upstairs. And this way I know I'll sell it out in a week. Oh, and, that's amazing. You know, and you just think, she said, oh, I thought I'd do you a favor. <laughs> and you know, that is never underestimate the power of relationships because I think COVID took that away when everything was done on Zoom or just, just an email or a text. Getting to know people and creating familiarity and and kind of friendship with whether it's your supply chain or whether it's your retailers or you know people that work in your store is vital yeah because they'll go that extra mile I mean you know you know it from your own shops don't you yeah yeah I think it's so important to build those relationships because my first relationship with my key supplier that was golden for me because I was um you know our minimum order quantities were very small but she was willing to produce five units for me she taught me everything all the jargons so I wouldn't get ripped off by other suppliers brilliant yeah and I would just walk into I used to live in Notting Hill when I first started the business I used to walk into boutiques and just like knock on their doors and become friends with them and I just like you know email bloggers and become friends with them so that founder relationship at least initially is so important you have to roll up your sleeves and just be out there be shameless like you said yeah and I think it's important for all the other members of the team too don't sit there and wait for it to come to you go out there and and make it happen it's fun you meet new people you never know who you're going to meet and, you know, some of my suppliers I'm still friends with, you know, and, and, and they haven't supplied for us for a while. And it's great. Yeah. And if you're friends with them, they'll go above and beyond for well, you. And I think if I look back to that first 2017, the first viral sensation that we had, if we hadn't known our suppliers so well, 
they would have never stepped up for us. And they were amazing. They put on extra shifts. They work weekends. They absolutely bust their balls for us, I have to say. And they they enjoyed our excitement too. I mean, at the time, it was just sort of working 24-7. And these guys just jumped on board. And that's what you want. You yeah. want to know. Because what happens if you suddenly were short an order? How many people do you know that you could dial up and say, help? Yeah, yeah. I think that's so important. Such an important point because when we first launched, when I first launched Astrid Mew, we were featured in the Grazia shopping list. And I think we only had like 20 units of that particular earrings and they just sold out within a day. And I called up my supplier at that time, who who is the supplier that I mentioned. And she just like produced and shipped things right over. So, you know, it, the products were in pre-order for one week and the customers could get them. This episode is sponsored by Harbottle and Lewis. As a first-time entrepreneur, getting advice from somebody I can trust who understands legals as well as commercials and the startup ecosystem was so crucial in the early days. This is what I found in Tony Littner, my friend and partner at Harbottle and Lewis. He was so knowledgeable and seasoned, yet he never made me feel stupid with legal jargons. Quite the opposite. He was able to explain things in simple language and could relate to commercial points like a founder. Since my first fundraise Tony supported me with, Harbottle and Lewis have been a genuine strategic partner throughout my journey. From subsequent fundraises to IP, operations, and HR matters. For over 60 years, Harbottle and Lewis have acted for some of the most creative, talented, and entrepreneurial people in corporate across all of their legal needs, both business and personal. Their client list is brimming with household names, the most exciting brands and coolest startups like Astrid and Mew. To find out more, you can follow them on Instagram and LinkedIn. Just search for Harbottle and Lewis. To find out how Tony and the team at Harbottle can support you, you can contact him directly for an initial conversation via the firm's website at harbottle.com slash Tony hyphen Littner. This episode is sponsored by BAO. Many people will know Astrid and Mew for our buzzing stores and their services. What they don't know is that we are a digital-first brand. After our quick store expansion, we were looking for an agency who can elevate the brand, guide us to scale, and build a truly omni-channel brand. That's when we came across by association only, otherwise known as BAO, the Shopify Plus agency for the world's most design-conscious luxury brands. They are founder and values-led, just like Astrid and Mew. They also just got the intangibles of brand building while being highly technical. The founders, James, Joe, and Evan, are so down-to-earth and are there to talk to you whenever you need them. BAO is a true partner and an extension of my team. If you're looking for an award-winning Shopify Plus agency that prioritizes design, technical innovation, and commercial growth, please visit byassociationonly.com, also linked in our show notes. So listening to your story, like, I feel like there is a common thread. You've got grit and you've got so much confidence and self-belief. Where does that come from? Walk me through like all the way back to your early years. Oh, my mother was a bit of a dragon, still is. Um, and always pushed us, always pushed us to be better. Um, and we were super conscientious. We never really pleased her. You know, we could have always done better. I was the youngest, so I was always, you know, a bit of a pain. I remember getting my A-level results and I was into railing and I think I was in Italy. And I had to sort of phone up with one of those, from those phone box in Italy, shoving the coins in. And I remember I got two Bs and I failed French. I was really lousy at French. I don't know why I did it. And she said, well, hugely disappointing. I wouldn't bother coming home if I were you. And that's what I dealt with. So I was always, I was never given encouragement or well done or praise or anything like that. And it was just always pushing us to do better. And so I always sort of felt like I didn't have anything to lose. And I'm quite a good disguiser of how I really feel. If I'm not 100% behind something... I won't have the confidence. If I'm 100% behind it, I will. Um, I'm also a bit of a loudmouth frog. And I can be quite compelling just because I can talk 
somebody into it. And it's the fact is I don't want to be that person who can't make a decision. I'm a great believer in make a decision. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Just make a decision and move things on. Because you know, when you're running an SME, it's pace. You've got to do everything at pace. And you can't sit there and have meeting after meeting procrastinating. You lose the passion. People get fed up. You know, nobody wants to go and work in a job which is just involves sitting in a room, having meetings, discussing the same thing again and again. We didn't have that agenda. Our agenda was always make a decision and move on. If you that decision could be, right, we're going to do three pieces of research to give us the answer on this one. But you've made a decision. But we couldn't do a board meeting each month and draw out the same things again and again because it meant we weren't moving forward. But um, I'm a bit of a, I think it's fair to say, I'm a bit of a bullshitter because when I'm not comfortable, I put on this facade that I am. But you've probably noticed I love talking. (laughs) That's so important though, right? They say fake it till you make it. Yeah, it yeah, is. Confidence, it is. like the, um, you know, I guess like the facade of confidence is really important because people want to believe in you when you're an entrepreneur. So Joanna, you started the business in 2011 and sold the business in around 11 years last year, which is the dream for a lot of founders. Can you tell me about the journey and what you're up to now. In March 2022, I sold 91.5% of the business to PZ Cousins, which is a British personal care PLC. So that was, yeah, the culmination of about 12 years, really hard work. And the decision was, we were actually looking for private equity because we wanted to grow the business internationally, but felt that we didn't have the war chest, the financial war chest we needed to do that. And then PZ Cousins came into the mix and we all sort of rather fell in love with each other. Saw it as a perfect fit and actually it worked incredibly well for me at that time in my life and also for my shareholders who'd been on quite a long journey with me. And um, it was hard work. I mean, when you go through that process of trying to get either a large dose of cash into your business or to sell it, It's a myriad of things that you need to cover off and you need to have all of your housekeeping done, so all your administration, every single thing that you could have ever hoped to have done from legal to IP to everything about your brand has got to be tip-top. You've got to have a really good story to tell and you've got to be able to tell that story on numerous occasions to interested parties. So at that time though, March last year, both my girls are now, well, now they're just about to turn 15 and 17. And sadly, my mother's got advanced dementia. So my time was really being pulled by them. And I felt it was time that I put them first. Because no matter how hard I tried, um, Charles Farm always trumped the kids. So it meant that I had time for them, for mum, and also my poor, long-suffering boyfriend, Jonathan, um, who was hugely supportive, but, you know, found that he was sort of second fiddle too. So it worked well with the timing. And it sort of created this new chapter of my life, which I was totally unexpected. I got involved with an initiative called Buy Women Built, which was, you know, very well, set up by our friends Sahar Hashimi and Barney McCauley, which was to bring founders like us together Um, and to learn from each other and to support each other as we go through the growing pains of creating a business. And through that, I've met some fantastic founders, including you, and also some opportunities to invest as an angel investor. And so this new chapter in my life is all about helping predominantly female founders on their journeys, giving them advice, giving them some mentorship, Um, doing the investment. I've invested now in 11 businesses. Can't believe I have, but I have. Um, All female founder. One of the founders is female, which I love. Some I'm getting involved with in a sort of busy relationship. So I'm actually, you know, probably once or twice a month getting involved with them, but enough to let them, I hope, flourish without me being too interfering. So that's a huge part of what my life is now. And also, I've always had a very long-term relationship with Riding for the Disabled and Paralympics GB. And um, I'm now doing more work with Paralympics GB, which is totally underfunded. I mean, Paris is coming in 2024, um, still don't have enough money for all the athletes to go. And they have a 
philanthropic arm, which is called the Parallel Club, which I'm going to become the chairman in September, which I'm really excited oh, about. Congratulations. To raise uh, it's more all, awareness. It's all so inspiring. I can't oh, wait to go to your you. next gala. Sorry, I, I missed it last time. Oh, no, but I mean, it's just, it's fun. And, and part of this challenge to myself is as well, you know, personal challenge, physical challenge. And, you know, I was saying to you earlier about, you know, when we were going through the process, I spent my life going through all my staff's drawers in the office at two, three in the morning and just eating whatever was there, which involved an awful lot of Harry bows. And so I've been getting myself fitter. And the pinnacle of that is I start training in November for a flat horse race in August next year. Oh, wow. In Glorious Goodwood. It's called the Magnolia Cup. It's only women jockeys, not professionals, all amateur. I'm coercing as many people as I can to come along and do it with me. Um, but I wanted something that was, again, a sort of physical driver for me because, you know, like you, we can't sit still. We're kind of always itchy. And as Mimi, my eldest, is 17, she's just doing her A-level year coming in September, um, she's then going to want to go and do other things. And I know she is always talking about the business she sets up. And so in due course, I'll be ready to help her with that. Whatever oh, that I love may that. Be. I, like, I can't wait for my girls to grow up and say, like, I want to start my own business. But they already have. Yeah, though. in fact, <laughs> my second one, Sky, she she's um, working on her jewelry business and a secret agent business. I rock and roll. I mean, you know, you've got to have irons in the five. The jewelry business or the secret agent business doesn't work out. She's got something to fall back yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. She can always pivot. Exactly. <laughs> she's really, exactly. Yeah. So it sounds like you've really found your second life after selling your business and really flourished like it sounds like you're in your element have you had any moment of doubt or like a grieving process after you sold child's farm oh my goodness oh it was very messy i um i yeah i found it really hard to adapt from having worked flat out to not working flat out I was overthinking. I was doubting whether I'd done the right thing. I felt like I'd had a limb removed because it was so so much part of my life and so much part of the kid's life. And, you know, I would find myself getting really upset about the tiniest thing. And, you know, yeah, I did financially well out of it. So Jonathan kept on sort of saying, go and look at your bank balance. But these things are more than that. And it's it's really hard to explain, yeah, but I think absolutely. you understand. Yeah, it is, it's, an, it's your identity, right? You yeah. poured your heart and soul into it and you've put all your finances into it. And it, it was it was everything. And and I, I'd made so many sacrifices for Child's Farm. I mean, untold sacrifices. And the, the people that were most hurt by that were actually the kids. And they were the ones that found it as difficult as I did to adapt to life after Child's Farm. Mm. And I think I probably had a grieving process of about eight months. Wow. And how did you overcome that? What was that process like? Oh, with a lot of help from Jonathan, actually, who yeah. is an executive coach. So he was, he, did, he, did you meet him rational. through coaching? Was he your coach? No, we were, we were fixed up on a, a oh, date okay. by his cousins, uh, actually. Okay, okay. But, otherwise um, it would have been really naughty. <laughs> I know, that would have been not allowed. Well, actually, I did ask him to be my coach after I first met him. And he said, don't be so ridiculous. I want to take you out for dinner. I can't be your coach. <laughs> But actually, he did introduce me to the most amazing lady, Jane Stevens, who then was my coach for three years. And she helped me enormously deal with, you know, I'm not a great people person, you know, and 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 in so much as I'll go into the office and I'm my brain's working. And, and I don't do the niceties of saying, hello, how are you? Did you have a nice evening? And I had to teach myself to dial that up. Mm. I'm also someone who gets my energy by being on my own. And not being around people, which is sort of slightly no, contradictory. I, yeah, I'm so surprised because you're so good at like talking. You're so engaging. So I would have like always thought you're a super extrovert. I'm the person that used to go on holiday on my own because I just needed time to recharge. Mm. And you know what it's like when you've got children. Yeah. I mean, you can't even go to the loo on your own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even now they just walk, march straight in. And I sort of started to say, right, we are going to have some boundaries about the loo. Um, and if it's not them, it's the dogs or even the cat. I mean, she's shameless. <laughs> so there's that kind of thing is, you know, it matters. And I think the other thing I would say to anyone who is a founder is just don't be, don't be afraid to realize what gives you energy and what doesn't give you energy and to find that time to give you 
what you need to thrive. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So what gives you energy? How do you keep yourself sane or less insane? I, d- I tell you, the one thing I do is reform a Pilates. That's the best thing I've ever done. It just calms me down. Yeah. But historically, and where all my best ideas have come from, is being on the back of a horse. I, we've always had horses in our lives. And for me, it's like a meditation. And I'll go out on my own, just me and Albie, and we, I will come back and I will have new plans. I will have new ideas. I will have clarity. Oh, I love that. And so you find, what do you, I mean, where do you get your clarity from? My clarity by walking normally. Yeah. Walking in the woods, walking in the park, or like taking a bath if I have time to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That so like when, when I'm on my own, 100%. Yeah. I have a tree as well. Oh, do I've you? got a tree, which is very close to where we live in Hampshire. And you have to walk to it. And it's an enormous beach. I mean, it must be two, three hundred years old. And I go and hug my tree. And I tell oh. my tree my problems. Oh, I love that. And my tree listens. Hmm. And it doesn't just, talk back. It doesn't talk <laughs> back. And I feel, you know, that whole thing about grounding yourself. Yeah. And getting perspective. And that was the thing. When I look back, and even a year ago, the things that upset me about, you know, the business were not things to be upset about at all. It was yeah. things to just sort of move on. And, you know, I keep my powder dry now. I think I'm a lot better at keeping my powder dry for things that really do matter. Yeah. And I let things go. If you can't change it and it's taking up too much of your thinking time and your energy, let it go. And yeah. that's the philosophy that I've taken on. Plus, I found this amazing place in Italy um, called La Fay, and I go there three times a year. And it's all Chinese medicine. It's all looking after yourselves. They give you the most amazing food, but not very much of it. But I come away <laughs> from that feeling rejuvenated and revitalized. Oh. It's right up in the, it's it, up in Lake Garda. Oh, the air the is link. like, oh my God, it's amazing. It, yeah, the air is like that. crystal. The people are beautiful. And I go with some friends and we come away, we kill ourselves laughing. And we found cryotherapy. You go and stand in a freezer for three minutes and it burns 400 calories. Oh, fabulous. Wow. wow. Absolutely fabulous. It sounds a bit weird, but like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, also, but this is yeah. this whole theory about, yeah. you know, the Wim Hof thing, cold baths, cold swimming, yeah, yeah. all of that. It's the same thing. You skip out of that. Mm. It, it's literally like going to weight trays and chucking out all the frozen peas and just lying in it, which I wouldn't <laughs> recommend because I think they'll get quite cross. But it's that kind of principle. Yeah. And, and, and you come out rejuvenated and refreshed. And I think having sacrificed so much of my personal health and I you know I was I was quite ill through the process of Charles Farm I've learned to take care of myself somewhat late in the day but I've learned to take better care of myself um and I've got the time to do that now yeah that's so important isn't it yes as you get older and you know as you like you know life progresses you can't really do anything unless you have a healthy body if you don't have your health you've got nothing yeah so take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So pivoting back to your angel investments, yeah, um, you know, life. Um, I think a lot of our followers would love to hear about what your perspective is as an investor. What do you look for in a founder and a business when you invest? Great question. I mean, for me, it's all about the founder. You want passion. You want dedication. You want drive. You want humor. You want energy. You want this sort of little Superman, Superwoman who nothing keeps them down, they're robust, they can bounce back, they don't take things personally. You know, I don't mind emotion. I love emotion in a founder. It means they care. Um, And so for me, the founder is the absolute driving force behind whatever it may be. Then I look at the product or the service or whatever that they're offering, and I just sort of look at it from my perspective. Would that matter to me? Mm. Would I care about it? I talk to friends and I ask them because a lot of my investments are things that wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't ever touch in my life. You know, some of the services are, are things that I wouldn't, but I get I get why others would. And so getting other people's perspective is really good. And also knowing, the founder knowing the value of their business. I mean, there's too many businesses that haven't even sold a thing that are valuing themselves at six million. You know, let's be realist for a second. If you're looking for a startup investor, that startup investor is coming in and taking enormous risk by supporting you. 
So until you have got a revenue stream and you've got distribution and you've got consumers, keep your valuations really realistic. Yeah, and that goes back to the founder character, right? Whether totally. they're humble enough, whether yeah. they think they're the shit when they have nothing. I mean, I, um, I didn't pay myself for five years. And, uh, same, same as me. Yeah, and, and even then when I did start paying myself, I paid myself a fraction of other people I paid because, and for me it was tough because at that stage, 90% of my income went on childcare. Um, but, you know, I say to founders in the initial stages, you should be eating out of the bins. You know, if you've got enough money to go on glitzy holidays and you've got enough money to go out for really nice dinners, why are you not backing yourself and investing in your own business? Because that's what I look for as an investor as well. That founder has got to have skin in the game. That founder has had to have made sacrifice. That founder has got to have their balls or their boobs on the line as much as the investors have. And if I go in there and I see a deck and I've got someone who's paying themselves £120,000 a year, I will say thank you, but this isn't for me immediately. So how do you assess the founder characters? What kind of questions do you ask? What do they need to answer Well, to you? I think, you you know, you can sniff them out at a thousand paces, the yeah, ones yeah. that really mean it. They're the ones that, you know, you find yourself smiling and, and you know, you, you want to hear more from them. You're engaged with them. You love their perspective. They're showing you a perspective maybe you've never had. They're telling you things that fill you with joy and excitement. And you walk away and you think, God damn it, these guys are good. That's what really that first meeting does make a difference. And even if you think maybe you're not the most confident of founder, and maybe you think that I'm not very good at articulating what it is, I look at the eyes and the eyes have the sparkle. The eyes will give you away about how passionate you are. So even if you can't articulate it that well, because many founders lack that confidence, it doesn't mean to say that you can't see the sparkle of passion in their eyes. And I always say to those founders who sort of say, oh, I'm not very good at that, I'm not very good at that, find someone on your team who compliments you. The whole of your team that you build should all complement each other. It doesn't mean to say you have to take on a co-founder. I think that can at that stage, unless it started with a co-founder, don't try to bring in a co-founder. Bring in your leadership team, so your senior guys that complement you. So you've got different perspectives and you've got different skill sets. But don't don't duff yourself up because you're a bit shy. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Because confidence doesn't equate competence. No. And you can see people's passion. And you have to just see people over time and see what they execute and how they deliver on their promises. Totally. And how you scrutinize their business plan as well. Yeah. Because if you take it personally and get really, really angry, that's an example right at the beginning of a relationship, how that relationship is going to continue to be. And I don't really want to invest in a business that's going to be negative and charged. Yeah. I want to be in a business where people are responsive and receptive and can argue their corner and show why they believe that by doing X or Y. And have fun debating and challenging each other. And it's nothing is personal. And that's the other thing you have to remember. You have to put on your Teflon overcoat when you're a founder. Yeah, you've got to have grit. You've got to have grit and you've got to be robust because otherwise the first time you're turned down by Sainsbury's or wherever it is that you're going, you're going to just sort of go into your corner and weep. You you can't. You've got to see that as a challenge. When we when we launched, and Sainsbury's were, funnily enough, the last retailer to take us on, I felt that the buyer at the time was on the cusp of getting a restraining order out on me. I mean, every time I phoned or emailed, she'd sort of say, would you just go away and leave me alone? And their head office in Hoban, they've got a big um, billboard outside. And I was going to get going to put up a poster going, Yoo-hoo, I'm here, <laughs> just to annoy her. But eventually we were such the market leader, they had to take yeah. us and they took us and we flew. Oh, I love and that. So energy. they were thrilled. But you can't get yourself down. So if you are out there and, and you are in the position and you founded a business, and there are times when you're gonna sit there and you're gonna think, what the bloody hell was I thinking when I set this business up? Just keep the passion there. Keep keep dialing back as to the reasons why you did something. Do you feel like you focus a lot more on founder characteristics versus other investors because you were a founder? 
Possibly, but I, I mean, I do have a whole group of people that I will invest with or we're always looking things to invest in together. And again, we all have different perspectives, but all of them will say the founders that the founder is what's key. Um, and then, as I say, just if you don't have what you think it needs for your business to fly, find someone else to just supplement that in yeah, you. But you just need that yeah. self-awareness, right? Yeah, you've got it. You've just got to believe so what's next for you, Joanna Jensen, and Charles Farm? Oh, so for Joanna Jensen, it's going to be much the same, actually. I sort of feel like I'm fully invested at the moment as an angel investor, probably for about the next 12, 18 months. So supporting those brands and helping them if they need further funding, really important. And building up my profile a bit more because I've got another two years left with Charles Farm and I've got to get a job when I finish. And so it'll be something, again, to do with um, SMEs, which is great. Sort of NED roles, advisory roles, you know, board roles would be great. Would you start another business? Would I start another business? Um, never say never. The right thing, my daughter is desperate for me to start a fashion business. I think that's mainly for her as much as for me, but we'll, we'll hold that in our thoughts. And then of course, Charles Farm, actually a lot going on over the next 12, 18 months as they expand internationally. And we've launched in the US in May. That is going to go into retail stores probably early next year. So there's a lot going on there. Great expansion in Europe. Austria, they started about six months ago. That's gone phenomenally well. Lots of leads around Europe and the Middle East. So exciting times for Charles Farm as we fulfill our potential. I always said I wanted to be a top five global player. And I think Pizzo Cousins have got the skill, determination and grit to make that so. Yeah, world domination. Here we go. Yes. And well, you're doing a bit of that too, Connie. Yeah, we're trying. <laughs> step by step. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. I oh. learned so much and I'm so inspired. Thank you well, so much, Jana. Thank you for inviting me. I've loved it, Connie. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Mew, and Unboxed Instagram page at unboxed underscore founder confidential. See you next week.